Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Conversation, a new podcast from The Spectator World. I'm The Spectator World's Washington editor, Amber Athey, and I'm joined today by Ashley Rinsberg, author, journalist, and novelist. And Ashley has written a pretty incredible piece for the latest edition of The Spectator's magazine. And it runs through this really odd email that no one else has really seemed to focus on with Dr. Fauci and some uh, affiliates of Chinese government, it seems. Ashley, can you walk us through how you found this particular email and what it shows about this relationship between Dr. Fauci and this donation that was made to Harvard Medical School? We're going to break it all down. It's, it's a little confusing to finally get to the finish, but start with the email itself, how you found it and what it says. That email was just hiding in plain sight. And that's one of the really incredible things about this story is that Basically, what you have is the dean of Harvard Medical School, kind of a luminary in the world of public health, of course, emailing Anthony Fauci saying, I'm in touch with the CEO of a Chinese company called Evergrande. And the time I stumbled upon the email was when Evergrande was in like every headline around the world because it was about to default on $300 billion of toxic debt. This was debt that was so burdensome to the company that, and it was so huge that the Chinese government actually feared that it would have a systemic effect on, on the economy. So this was kind of one of those like, like alarm bells where you think, what is the CEO of a Chinese real estate behemoth that is catastrophically indebted doing, trying to make contact with the coordinator of America's pandemic response not only that, but the timing was even weirder. This was February 2nd. This is 2020, right at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. This is Fauci sleeping in the White House situation room. He is overwhelmed, overloaded, and he actually takes time to have a phone call with the dean of Harvard Medical School about this matter. And you just think, wait a second, what is going on here? And the reason that I picked up on this, I think, is actually kind of a product of other people not picking up on it. And I think that's something that is kind of a parallel issue here, which is that the media has just not investigated any of this stuff. The media has been so busy with anything Trump related, Trump task forces, Trump committees of investigation, whatever, what have you, which is not to say any of that is necessarily illegitimate, but it's literally been at the expense of everything else, including the story of a generation, meaning where did this pandemic come from? So I saw that the alarm bells went off for me in a big way and I started to dig. Okay. So you start to dig and, and I've read the story and I can tell you, I mean, your point about the media is spot on because there's been such a lack of coverage on this issue in particular, that when I first read it, it sounded like a conspiracy theory because it's so much deeper than anything else we really read about the pandemic response. So you start digging and you're looking into the sort of the impetus for the email. And then I guess they actually had a meeting, Fauci and the dean of the Harvard Medical School and this Evergrande individual. Um, what did you find as you dug deeper and did it only get worse from there? It got a lot worse. So the, the real key to all this is the timing. And the reason that I say that is because on February 1st, which I believe was a Saturday, uh, 2020, Anthony Fauci calls this emergency conference call 
with him and all the uh, most important people in the world of public health and, and virology and epidemiology within the American government science establishment. That would be Fauci, his boss at the NIH, Francis Collins, the very top research, uh, the head of the top research establishment in, in the UK is a guy named Jeremy Farah. And then the most important scientists working in the field of, of virology and uh, microbiology and immunology, they get on this emergency phone call. The reason that they have the phone call is the key, because what had happened is that the day before, Fauci sees an article in Science Magazine that's kind of just wondering aloud about what might be the causes of the pandemic? Where might have this come from? And one of the things that Science Magazine article specifies is a 2015 study between an American researcher and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the famous WIV, or infamous by this point, where so-called bat lady uh, researchers, world, world famous researcher specializes in bat-borne coronaviruses is located. And in this 2015 study, the WIV and the American researcher are creating something that was later described as the model is if you were going to create SARS-2 in a lab, that experiment would have been the prototype for making it in a laboratory. And Fauci gets really scared that the NIH might have funded that study because that would, that would raise a lot of uncomfortable questions why they would be doing that study, why they would be doing that with the WIV, which is a a lab run by the Chinese government where Chinese military personnel are present. So it turns out the NIH, NIH actually did fund that study partially, and he, they rush onto the phone call to sort of do damage control. Along the way, a number of top scientists in the United States write to Fauci saying, listen, we actually do not have a natural explanation, evolutionary explanation for some of the features of this virus. The only explanation we have for these features is that they were engineered in a lab. And these are not conspiracy theory type scientists. These are the creme de la creme of the science establishment in the United States coming to him saying, this thing looks engineered. This thing looks like it came from a lab. From we jump onto that phone call on February 1st, immediately afterwards, they all flip their position. Within two days, every single one of them comes out saying, oh, actually, that was a mistake. No chance that this could have been engineered. No chance it could have come from a lab. They went even further than that. And they said, anyone who says it was not from an animal, direct transmission from an animal, is a conspiracy theorist. And that was the beginning of the big false narrative about the origin of the pandemic, that if you didn't believe it came from an animal, then you were a conspiracy theorist. The media picked that up in due course within a month, they were, they were spewing that lie. And the next day after this tele teleconference is when Harvard Medical School gets in touch on behalf of this Chinese company with deep ties to the CCP. So that's really what we need to understand here is that the, this, company with $300 billion in debt reaches out to Fauci through Harvard Medical School as the back channel. The day after that, Fauci has his very first phone call with the head of the Chinese CDC, which had refused to cooperate with the Americans until that point. And the very next day after that, February 4th, Evergrande, again, $300 billion in debt, gives Harvard Medical School $115 million. Interesting. So if you start putting the pieces together, it sounds like 
Evergrande promised to give this donation to Harvard Medical School, but maybe they wanted Fauci to play ball and help cover up the origin of the virus in the sense that it was funded by the U.S. and created in a Chinese lab. I mean, that's that's where you, where you get ultimately if you start linking this together, right? I think the, the, one, the one tweak and the one kind of common misconception that I had as well until I started digging into this was that the Americans and the Chinese were on different sides of the, the issue here, that they were in opposition to each other on the issue and, and that the Chinese were somehow trying to exert pressure on Fauci and co. That's actually not true. They were on the same side. They were both equally incentivized to build this false narrative about the virus's origin Namely, that if, it, if you believe it didn't come from an animal, you're a fringe theorist, you're a racist, you're a conspiracy theorist. The Chinese government and the American government, for various reasons that I don't think we'll go into right now, they were both incentivized to push that same message. With Harvard jumping in, it basically gave them access to the most prestigious set of allies in American science and public health that you could ask for, and at a very low price, actually. I mean, for, for a company of that size. And again, when we're talking about Evergrande, we're not talking about Evergrande. We're talking about the Chinese government. At that point, Evergrande is so catastrophically indebted that they could not do anything with money that was not approved by Chinese government officials. And even further than that, the person that the Evergrande CEO and his colleagues said they were representing was uh, Zhang Nanshan, who's the, the most famous and important scientist regarding uh, related to viruses in all of China. He was the guy who contained the SARS-1 outbreak. He's a legend in China. He's an incredibly important person. There is no way Evergrande, a Chinese real estate company, would get access to that level of scientist without direct government intervention to allow it or possibly to even kind of engineer that whole scenario. Right. I mean, because my question would be, if they're in all of this debt, where do they even get the money to be able to promise this kind of donation? Exactly. Where would they have gotten the money? How would they have gotten it approved? At the end of the day, it, there, there was kind of a, a an extraordinary bait and switch here because they promised all this money to Harvard. There was a huge amount of fanfare. There was a Boston Globe op-ed, a big Science Magazine article in which you have a Yale virologist coming out saying, coronavirus is not good for real estate. That was his, That was the extent of his quote, the entirety of a virologist saying that coronavirus is not good for real estate, which turned out to not be true at all, by the way. And then at the end of the day, Evergrande only made good on about $12 million of that pledge. And they got all the benefit of, of having access to Harvard for um, just about two years before they reneged on the donation. The job was already done. I mean, most of us now, just as you kind of referenced earlier in the conversation, you kind of think it's a conspiracy theory, but why do we think that? Why would we? Why would anyone have any inclination naturally to think that this ought to have come from an animal rather than from the lab in Wuhan that is known for having the largest collection of bat-borne coronaviruses in the world and for being leaky as well. So the reason is because there's been a very concerted campaign waged over the past two years at enormous expense, both in terms of political capital and actual capital, to make the public, public believe that false narrative. If you question that it was zoonotic, that it came directly from an animal, you are a racist conspiracy theorist. What I find really interesting as well is the donation that Evergrande promised was actually, it seems specifically given to study COVID-19. So it's like, 
uh, almost circular in, in they locked up like every avenue of potential challenge to this narrative. I mean, even the money was given with the express purpose of advancing this narrative that this was a naturally occurring virus. And that China was the China was not only supremely competent in general. I mean, that was, again, one of the sub narratives here, which is that China is so competent that it's able to do what no, no other country in the world has done, which is contain the virus. Again, another lie. We're, we're now seeing the extent of that lie play out on the streets of Shanghai and Beijing. But then uh, part and parcel to that, there was this kind of sub sub narrative, which is that China, the Chinese government is incredibly benevolent. They're so kind hearted and good hearted for the rest to the rest of the world that they're going to give Harvard this money to study the virus and create new therapies, et cetera, where we know that for the first at least two months, possibly much longer, three, maybe four, the Chinese government were doing everything in their power to obscure the spread of the virus, the way that it was transmitted. They denied that there was human to human transmission of the virus when they knew for a fact that there was. They were not allowing the American CDC into China to help investigate. They stonewalled basically every organization agency in the world. So this was not a question of China being benevolent, but with this wonderful donation and all the coverage in the Boston Globe, in Science Magazine, in Nature, wherever it spread, You've got this great story about how China's doing this amazing work, that the private sector is stepping up in conjunction with the with the CCP to do what even the Americans aren't doing. And it was, of course, all complete nonsense. And the other thing that it did was it gave them really, really sensitive access to American labs, because that money from Evergrande ended up funding research in, a, in one of America's two bio containment, national biocontainment labs. One, This one was called Needle. It's in Boston, not by coincidence. So you, you just have this kind of swirl of malfeasance, but it all comes back to narrative. That's a really important point about their access to labs, because we know from Department of Justice indictments over the past couple of years that China has been trying to steal American research. They have been implanting Chinese Communist Party spies in our research labs to try to get information. And it doesn't seem to be taken seriously by our American universities. I mean, we have we had a, an attempt by Mike Pompeo under uh, the Trump administration to root out some of the CCP spies by limiting Chinese nationals access to American labs. And as soon as he was out of office, the Biden administration reversed that and declined to do any further investigation. Yeah, China is not just trying to steal American research. It is doing it very successfully. And right at the same period that all this was going on, Charles Lieber, who was a, a Harvard uh, nanotechnologist, nanoscientist, was arrested by the FBI for selling secrets to China. And I think this was literally in the same, same few week period that Evergrande was paying off Harvard Medical School. And at the same time as that, you have um, the Department of Education serve Harvard and Yale as well a letter saying you are now formally under investigation for cooperating with the Chinese government um, and, and for taking money that you did not report. And that was kind of an explosive development. That was part of the Trump administration's campaign to combat this type of thing. But this stretches back literal decades. I mean, Evergrande had already given Harvard $200 million at very least in around 2013 to build this sort of multidisciplinary center, a constellation of three academic centers on Harvard's campus. 
there was a lot of money at stake. Whenever the chairman and founder of Evergrande would come to Harvard to visit, he would be treated as if he were um, a statesman, uh, the head of a the, like a head of state, foreign head of state. Roll it, rolled carpet, red carpet rolled out. Sorry, and personal tours led by the Harvard president for this man because the co cooperation was so tight and was so close for so many years. And it was a very convenient way for the CCP to handle this kind of connection, that they would get this conduit under the guise of a private company, where in reality, by the time Xi Jinping took control of China around 2013, there was no such thing as a private company in China. That's really um, something that is a misnomer, is a bit of a euphemism among us in the West to think that there are real boundaries in China between private and public entities. Yeah, can you dig into that a little bit more? Because I think um, that is sort of a misconception among Americans. In, in, in what way do corporations actually interact with the CCP? Are they one and the same? Can they do anything without CCP approval? How exactly does all of that work? We're seeing it play out uh, more and more. I mean, you know, Jack Ma just disappeared one day because he came out and was critical of some Chinese economic policies. And that's that. There's no recourse. Nobody's asking any questions about that. In 2017, they passed, China passed a national intelligence law, which made it obligatory for any individual or company to pass on intelligence that might be beneficial in any way to the state of China, meaning they co-opted the entirety of the country, including the, the private sector, into their national intelligence gathering operation. And if you didn't comply, if you happened to stumble across some information that was, could be potentially useful and the Chinese government found out that you didn't pass along, you would be guilty of offending that law. So you get to the point that after that law, and that was the culmination of a series of laws and measures put into place under Xi Jinping, you get to the point where a regulator in Australia comes out saying, we can no longer consider there to be any such thing as a private company in China. It, it's, it's an empty category. And I think at this point, most uh, serious analysts of Chinese economy would agree. And that especially became the case when China released its um, three red line policy dealing with uh, private sector debt. That was, I think, around 2020, where they said they put various caps on debt because they saw that there was a big debt bubble forming. And Evergrande was had run afoul of all three of the three red lines, meaning it was particularly vulnerable to CCP dictates, and it really had to get in line, which it did. And that's just something that you hear um, other, other scholars and academics talk about in terms of how how leaders in the private sector think about the Chinese government. One of them said that it's like they're being chased by a bear and they will do anything to outrun that bear, including throw their colleagues to the bear to keep him busy in the meantime. So you have these excessive statements of allegiance by companies, the heads of companies like Evergrande who said, I owe everything to the state. I owe everything to the party. And this in Evergrande's case went so far as to have the chairman and founder of the company serve as the CCP liaison, the, the head of the party cadre. This was kind of the, the institution, the organization that liaises between the party and a private group or par private company or organization. He was actually in charge of that cadre in addition to being chairman of the board of the company. So he was kind of one foot in the company, one foot in the party. 
Yeah. So, okay. So we've established that Evergrande and the CCP are, you know, operating in tandem essentially. And then on Harvard Medical School side, you've pointed out that Harvard Medical School has had a long relationship with the CCP, but also at the moment that they were offered this donation, they were dealing with their own financial issues as well. Yeah. Harvard runs a very unique approach to accounting, which is called every tub on its own bottom. And what that means is that Every school within Harvard, within the, the larger university, deals with, with its own profit and loss. So it doesn't matter that Harvard has a $52 billion endowment. If the Harvard Medical School is running a loss, it is in debt, it is, it is, it has a deficit on its books. So Harvard Medical School is notorious for running these kinds of huge debts for various reasons. By 2019, 2020, they were facing one of the most significant debts that they'd seen in, in quite a long time. It was on the order of 60, 60 million dollars, which is even by Harvard standards, a lot of money. So this was the kind of money that Harvard Medical School was desperately in need of. They had been propped up before by large scale donation. Um, they hadn't seen anything like that, that big come in for a while. And now with the big hit of the pandemic, they were running short on cash and and frantic. Uh, the dean of Harvard Medical School was um, one of his his real big missions as dean, is probably his primary mission, was to raise money for the for the school to get it out of debt, to keep it in the black. So Evergrande comes along with this incredible honeypot. I mean, you know, that's that is a major donation by any standard. One hundred and fifteen million dollars. It goes a long way, and you know, it, it by all appearances was too good to pass up, even knowing what the associations might be, what the liabilities there were. I mean, it would have been obvious to someone as sophisticated an operator as the, the dean of the medical school. But nevertheless, they took it with both arms. Let's go back to Dr. Fauci's involvement in this for a moment, because, I mean, he helped facilitate this donation. And apparently, I mean, it seems to me that he would be the point person to sort of direct everybody like, hey, we're changing the narrative on this lab leak theory we're going to say that it came from a wet market or what have you. Has Dr. Fauci, either since you've uh, been doing this research or, or even since most scientists have now publicly reached the conclusion, so to speak, that the virus was not naturally occurring, has he spoken about how he got this so wrong or, or offered any sort of explanation or excuse? Because I, rem I remember when he ended up admitting that people should be wearing masks, uh, even though initially he said not to. And then he started changing the numbers on uh, what percentage of Americans needed to have COVID or, vac or were vaccinated in order to reach herd immunity. He kind of said, oh, well, it was for your own good, right? Like I needed to hide this information because the American public wasn't ready to hear it yet. Has he offered anything similar for this particular theory, where the virus actually came from? There is still a debate raging within the science community, both the official American establishment and the broader science community. And it's broken basically into two camps, maybe three. But generally, you know, there are those who believe it was zoonotic and those people are quite forceful and, and, and vigorous in presenting that 
idea. And many of them um, sort of revert to the false narrative that if you don't think like them, you're a conspiracy theorist and something you see all the time. Then you've got some other people who are either open to both or they believe it was a lab leak. And there are among those groups, many, many prominent scientists, as well as officials from the WHO, from the American government who believe it was from a lab. The American intelligence community has officially assessed that the, the virus is more likely than not to have come from the lab in Wuhan. But on Fauci's behalf, he for sure is part of the zoonosis camp. I mean, he he is not left that camp. He's not strayed or wandered. And at, kind of as you pointed out, he would have been the point person there to coordinate that messaging. I, I don't have direct evidence that that was the case. That February 1st, 2020 uh, teleconference call, the emails, the FOIA emails have been completely redacted meaning we were talking about black squares on the emails that were released to the public, which is ridiculous. And nobody on that call has really come out to, to say what they were talking about and who was saying what. But I have heard sort of through back channels that it was Fauci who was calling the shots there, which makes sense. I mean, Fauci calls the shots in many regards. I think this is, a, this is one of these things that we have not asked nearly enough questions about. We get all these really fun facts about Anthony Fauci, such as he is the highest paid member of the federal government, period. Meaning he gets paid more than his boss, about double. He's paid more than four-star generals, more than senators, more than Supreme Court justices, more than the president of the United States of America. Nobody's asking why that is. I find that very odd. Um, there are a lot of other kind of questions about Anthony Fauci that people ought to be asking. I think Fauci, you know, there there is this campaign to demonize and vilify him. I think that's wrong. I don't think he is a bad actor. I think he's a guy in a very, very difficult position and a very difficult job making, calling shots that are hard to call, that I wouldn't want to be in a position of making those kinds of decisions. But he has made the decisions. He is now responsible for some of these decisions, including um, the decision about how people spoke and how the scientific community in America spoke about the origin of the pandemic and to what extent the public was going to get to know where this thing that upturned our lives, that immiserated us, that killed 6 million people, where it came from and how we have no real governmental or journalistic investigation into this thing that is producing news by the day or by the week is to me kind of an outrage. Yeah, man, you just opened up so many questions for me. So the first one, we'll start with this. This we, These are decisions that affect lives, no question, right? And when the scientists were making the case publicly that it was a conspiracy theory to believe that the virus came from the Wuhan lab, do you think that that affected their behind the scenes investigation into the origins of the virus? And could that have potentially affected decisions that were made in regards to how to slow the spread or develop vaccines? I guess what I'm saying is, do you think there was a difference between what was happening privately in terms of research versus what they were saying publicly to us? 100%. There, there's almost no doubt. I mean, there, that the fact that you have these leading scientists coming to Fauci on January 29th or 30th or 31st saying, this looks engineered, we have no other explanation, and then have this telephone call, and then the next day or the day after come and say, and write this in a letter to the White House, an official policy letter to the White House saying, 
there's no way that this was from a lab. It, you don't do research on that scale in that time frame. You don't do it in a time frame of a week or two weeks. You do it in the time frame of months or years. So the fact that this all hinged on you know an hour or two hour phone call speaks to that notion that this was a political lining up of the soldiers. They were told more than likely, more likely than not, to get in line. And this is the messaging. And possibly even this is the reason why we're giving the message. And of course, a lot of this stuff touches back to the so-called um, gain of function debate, which is broader than gain of function itself. Gain of function is you know taking a virus and seeing if it can be made more lethal, more virulent, more transmissible. So that was one aspect of all this kind of research, which is very, by nature, it's very risky. I mean, if you think about what a virus is, it's something that we just saw kill 6 million people. A nuclear bomb doesn't kill 6 million people. This is the most potentially deadly weapon in the world. And what these scientists were doing were they were going out to the wild. They were trying to find new viruses. Then they were actually seeing if they could make these viruses infect human beings if they were from a bat or from a different animal. And they were succeeding. They were doing this again and again and again. This really picked up around 2000, 2010, 2011 and ramped up after that. So you've got this huge, hugely controversial scientific practice that the scientists involved really want to hang on to the ability to do that. There was a moratorium placed on some of these practices because some of these very same scientists considered it so risky that they said, we no longer can go forward with this stuff. We are making bombs. We are making virological bombs in laboratories, and it's getting easier to do it by the day. And what that means is that you might have these, these, this kind of stuff going on in a biosafety lab, a level four lab in uh, Boston, which is all very well. But all this stuff is very replicable. Once it gets published and into the scientific literature, basically any scientist with the right equipment anywhere in the world, and that equipment is becoming increasingly cheap and accessible, can do the same thing at whatever biosafety lab level they want to do that at. And that's what we've been seeing. That's why China was doing some of this research at BSL level two, um, which means that they don't have the kinds of safety procedures that would have been in place in the United States for similar kinds of research. And the U.S. was funding that research. And again, the, these are the questions we have to say, why would the U.S. fund that research in China? Why would they allow such risky research to go on in a lab that had not really established itself as a premier lab in terms of safety practices and procedures? The, the Chinese are very new at the BSL, the, at, at creating very high-level biosafety labs. Um, it was a, something that they had to turn to the French to build for them. They didn't really have the experience to do it. The United States has eight BSL-4 labs in the country. You think, why not just do it domestically, where we have the equipment, the, the staffing, we have the procedures. Again, these are the questions we need to be asking, and we're still not asking them. That's pretty terrifying to hear all of that. You mentioned earlier that there is still this debate raging in the scientific community about where what the origins of the virus were. What do you think was the breaking point for some of the top tier scientists feeling comfortable saying publicly that they do believe it came from the lab? I think it was um, kind of, you know, just people chipping away at the narrative. There were a few brave individuals in the media who were really taking on the issue. Josh Rogan of the Washington Post is, is a notable standout. 
where that gave it a little bit of a you know a little bit of that credibility where you say well rogan is in the washington post reporting on this stuff so we can maybe toe into it carefully i think that was a, a big part of it and then you know there there were some slips i mean we we had a lot of incidents of the attempt to build the false narrative being exposed. So you have this famous letter going into the Lancet, a very prestigious journal signed by 27 scientists saying same, same message. This cannot be from a lab. And if you think so, you're a conspiracy theorist and you're endangering our colleagues in China, you're threatening their lives, et cetera. And it turns out that that whole letter was engineered by one of the signatories, a man named Peter Daszak, who is directly connected to all this research. He is the funding conduit. He's the vehicle. His organization called EcoHealth Alliance is the organization that takes money from the United States government and distributes it to places like the Wuhan lab. So he had a conflict of interest. He was organizing that letter and then it exploded in his face. And that sort of lent another level of credibility to the idea that not all is as it seems here. It's not quite so innocent as everyone is making it out to be on that side of things. And I think that emboldened things. So we, we have a, a series of events. You also have some very high profile scientists, um, Richard Ebright being one of them. He's, he's a real luminary in that space who's been very vocal. Alina Chan from Harvard and the Broad Institute she wrote a book with um, Matt Ridley, who's, who himself is a scientist and science writer, about the origin of the pandemic possibly being from a lab. So I think it's been this coordinated effort. And the last piece of that, I would say, and I'd really be remiss not to mention this, is a group of Twitter users called Drastic. So these guys are just independent users. Most of them are anonymous and they collectively did more important work than the rest of the legacy news media combined in terms of unearthing genetic sequences that had been hidden by the Chinese government, trying to build a timeline, showing the continuity, bringing out the data. They had done some extraordinary stuff. And this was just kind of this ragtag group of Twitter users. Some of them are data scientists. Some of them are researchers. Some of them, we don't know who they actually are. Um, and they did some extraordinary stuff that really brought to light a lot of the discrepancies regarding this narrative. Last question for you, and maybe it's a bit more of a commentary on my part, but um, you said earlier, there are a lot more questions that people should be asking about Dr. Fauci. And one that I've always had is why was he so resistant to therapeutics um, in favor of vaccines? And he had a very similar response during the AIDS epidemic. So it seems like, I don't know if, if Dr. Fauci is just a vaccine guy, that's just how he is or if there's some type of financial incentive behind his, his encouragement of vaccines over therapeutics. Um, I mean, to this day, AIDS is treated by therapeutics. We still don't have a vaccine for that. Um, so maybe you can shed some light on, onto that particular question that I have about Dr. Fauci, or if, if you don't have much illumination, then I would greatly appreciate it if you would write another great investigative piece like you did on this lab leak hypothesis. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't definitively know the answer to that. I don't know if he has financial dealings with with vaccine producers. I think that we, you know, we'd be ill-advised to underestimate the role that groupthink plays in all of this stuff. So in this case, you know, the the virus that that we've all the respiratory virus that everybody's been thinking about forever is flu, is influenza. That that is the model for dealing with viruses of these kinds. Of course, we have SARS one, which you know was a um, a 
there was an outbreak. It wasn't in the rise to level of pandemic. So they didn't get to this point where you were building a model around it. But a lot of these models of how to deal with these things come from the flu. We all reference the 1915 flu panic uh, pandemic. And how do we treat the flu? We treat it through flu shot. You know, it's essentially the same kind of approach to a vaccination where you're trying to get the right vaccination that will prevent someone from contracting the disease. Um, And my guess is that played at least a part of the role in it is to say, like, this is the flu playbook. And I think that was that's something that also played a role in other aspects of public policy, health policy regarding the response to the pandemic is that what do we do for the flu? How does the flu generally spread? You know, we've had a lot of this conversation about surfaces, like we were all wiping down every surface and gelling our hands like crazy. There's still no evidence that that SARS-2 spreads through surface contact. But that was, again, one of these things that was grafted over from the flu, which does spread that way. So I think that might be a part of the explanation. If there's something deeper, more sinister, it might be out there. I just don't know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for breaking down this story, Ashley. It's just been really illuminating and I still have so many questions, but um, I think we're, we're kind of out of time. So thanks again, Ashley Rinsberg, for coming on the Spectator podcast and catch you guys next time. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available. 